We are studying the book of Acts together. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Just a reminder while we're turning there, uh, if you're here with us today and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you just flag them. They'll put a Bible in your hand, and then if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from us to you today. A water baptism, as, again, as Pastor Haji announced, it'll be a week from tomorrow, May 8th, Monday, and uh, 6.30 p.m., and it's important to realize that uh, uh, water baptism is a commandment for Christians, and so if you've never been water baptized, this is an opportunity to do that. We want to obey the Lord in everything that He calls us to do. It represents some very significant things. On the night of the water baptism, I'll explain what those things are, and uh, all you need to do in order to be water baptized is born again, just having trusted in Jesus for uh, salvation and the forgiveness of sins, and then we'll take it from there. And so, uh, a great night, great opportunity to get water baptized if you haven't been before. It is one of the sweetest kind of nights as we do it three or four times in the course of the year. Lots of people come out who've already been water baptized and just enjoy the fellowship of the evening, the worship, uh, seeing this great night that's going on in people's lives. And so, uh, come on out. Uh, even if you've been water baptized, sweet evening, kingdom of God, nothing like it in the whole world. Verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. Therefore, Paul writes, uh, uh, Luke writes, but Paul's speaking, he declares, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that with these hands, and can you see him putting his hands out before those Ephesian elders, that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this, that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all, and then they all wept freely and fell on his uh, neck. These are strong hugs. And they kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray together. Father, we never cease to lose our awe at being able to turn to your word this morning, not a newspaper article, not a, a, a book of fiction or a book of human history or uh, something within a magazine, but your word that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth, your word that feeds our souls and uh, gives us perspective and hope and truth in a way that nothing else can. 
And we thank you for these verses in your book, and we thank you ahead of time for what they're intended to accomplish within our lives as we would study them. We surrender ourselves to your Holy Spirit who is present with us in this room, and we ask that he would teach us, Lord, and instruct us for the immediate needs within our life, but also just simply to thoroughly furnish us as Christians unto every good work so that we can be a mature and knowledgeable part and person within the body of Christ. And we ask all these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As we've seen, Paul is very near now to the end of his third missionary journey, and he has called for the elders of a church that he had spent uh, three years in helping establish the elders of the church in Ephesus to come and meet him in the city of Miletus in order to give them some final instructions. Excuse me a moment. To give them some final instruction, convinced that he's never going to see them again. He is in this discourse that he delivers to these Ephesian elders, something uh, very, very significant is, occur is occurring. And some of you in your uh, church history are uh, familiar with it. The church at Ephesus is moving from its place of being under the oversight of the Apostle Paul to now it's going to be under the oversight of these elders. Paul is leaving, and so uh, as he's uh, handing this over to these leadership, turning the church over to them, super, super big deal. He wanted to give them some final kind of exhortations and then also some encouragements in what it was that they were going to head into. His discourse here is made up of two main points, really. First of all, in verses 18 to 27, Paul spoke to them of all the things that they had seen in his life during his three years of ministry in Ephesus, and the idea was that they were to make uh, those things uh, hit their example in their life in leading the church as well, and we have looked at those things in recent weeks. And then second, as we look at it this morning, his charge to them personally as he commissions them now to lead this church into its uh, next season of its existence, and uh, this is what we look at uh, this week. His final charge here really consists of two basic parts, uh, things that they were to take heed to, and then followed by a beautiful encouragement uh, from the Apostle Paul, six things that they were to take heed to, and then two things they were to be encouraged in. And so, We've entitled the message this morning, Take Heed and Take Heart. By way of introduction, I think it's important to realize that while Jesus is the head of the church, the body of Christ in the entire world, and he is the head of every single individual uh, church, that he is also determined that, uh, that the church is to be led uh, any church, the local church, is to be led through leadership that he appoints within the church. God ordains leadership within a church. That's how it's to be led. That's how he is to communicate to it, uh, and uh, that's how it's to progress in its calling. 
Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, verse 11, and he said, and he, that is Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. These are all leaders within uh, a local church for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Lord, uh, of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And while we see, and we're going to see it here this morning, there are some people who rise to positions of leadership within a church under the motivation of selfish ambition or uh, people are self-appointing themselves as leaders of churches and so forth. It is important. They give, they give leaders a bad name, but they're very, very small percentage. Most of the leaders, the overwhelming majority of leaders within any local church and within the body of Christ as a whole uh, are being led by men and women who have been called by God to do so, and they're just simply being obedient to that uh, calling. I think it's also important to realize that one day uh, leaders will face a stricter judgment before God than others in the body of Christ who are not uh, leaders. I never lose sight of that related to my life. Um, I don't get to live like everybody else. I don't get to act like everybody else. I want to be who I am. It's not like God's got his thumb on me. But I realize that one day I'm going to face a judgment before God as a pastor uh, that uh, someone who is not called to lead in a church, a stricter one, than, than they will uh, face. James speaks of it in James chapter 3, verse 1. James is quite an exhorter. And he uh, declares it succinctly, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you shall receive a stricter judgment. Jesus himself chimed in, if we can uh, declare Jesus to chime in on anything, uh, Jesus spoke authoritatively uh, on the issue, and he said, for any, uh, everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. And so it is a position of God-given authority within a church, but it also has with it enormous responsibility uh, that leaders will one day give a personal account to God for how they operated within that office. I think it's also important to realize that in the early church, in Paul's day, and it's still true of much of the world uh, today, all of the world really, uh, but more acutely in much of the world today, for instance, in China, uh, North Korea, the Middle East, parts of Africa, parts of uh, South America and so forth, Europe, that people uh, that hold these positions of leadership in that day, but even today, but in those uh, that they hold those positions, these positions in the body of Christ sacrificially. Uh, they pay a price for it. Um, when Paul wrote to Timothy concerning the requirements uh, of an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he prefaced his remarks there in terms of the qualifications that were uh, required with a word of encouragement to leaders. He said, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. People weren't lining up to become pastors in those days. 
or to become elders and deacons within churches or home fellowship leaders in churches in those days because it was a period of tremendous persecution being meted out against the church at that time. And to be a leader within the church would mean uh, not that you would get some kind of perks or preferential treatment. It meant that you would be the first to be arrested or persecuted or even martyred. And, of course, this tended to weed out uh, not all, but uh, all uh, for the most of the carnal motivations for becoming leaders. It was a significant test of motivation becoming a leader in the body of Christ. You would almost not do it uh, unless uh, God had called you uh, to do it because of the price that you would pay. And so Paul, uh, knowing that godly leaders in those days and even today, they needed encouragement in their calling, and so Paul told them that, hey, this is a good thing. There's, uh, if God has called you to do it, then there's no better way for you to spend your life, whatever the sacrifices might be. Now, because there is always a sacrifice involved in being a leader in a local church, uh, if not in terms of time and then certainly in a lot of other ways as well. There's always a price to be paid. The Bible repeatedly speaks to all of us as Christians to be supportive of those that hold those positions. And, of course, it assumes that they're maintaining uh, godly character uh, that's required for the office. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account, and let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule be counted worthy of double honor, uh, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourself. Well, someone might say, well, this is very self-serving for you to read all of those verses. Yes, I've got 20 more. I'm going to finish the morning out with them. Why in the world would, would I do that? Because we live in a culture that is generally very, very rebellious against authority, and it is highly nurtured within our culture, a rebellious spirit. And the Bible teaches very clearly that we're not to bring that attitude uh, into God-ordained authority uh, within a church in the kingdom of God. Now, let's take note of these six things that, and we'll look at them very briefly, obviously, this morning, that Paul tells uh, church leaders that they're to take heed to. When he uses the word take heed to, that uh, phrase means in the original language to hold the mind toward. In other words, it means they're to, uh, they are and we are to keep this at the forefront of our minds. Pay attention to these things. Apply yourself uh, to them. The Apostle Paul was not going to be physically with these leaders uh, any longer. So he now tells them what they can expect now is they're going to step up into new positions in the light of his absence. And so he had been doing 
virtually all of these things for them up to this point, and now they were going to have to do these things on behalf uh, of the church. And I think that sometimes it isn't until somebody leaves that we begin then to grasp, you know, what they've been doing all along, and we've been unaware of it because they don't uh, toot their own horn, and then now what in the world we do uh, do here? What, what, do, what would Paul do here? How would he view this? What would he say? And Paul knows that all of these questions are going to come to their mind very, very quickly, and so he addresses them before uh, he leaves. The first thing that he tells them is that they're to take heed uh, to themselves, verse 28. And so Paul begins by exhorting them to pay very, very close attention to their character and to their manner of life. And he begins here, and he absolutely uh, should, of course, because no church and no ministry will ever rise above the godly character and the godly life of its leaders. It may rise uh, for a period of time in some kind of an excitement or whatever, but unless there is godly character and a godly life that is being marked by the leaders, uh, ultimately uh, the church will uh, collapse or it, it, it will be badly, badly damaged. If this isn't right, of course, then the Holy Spirit becomes grieved, ultimately he becomes quenched, and then he removes his favor and the fullness of his presence off uh, of the church, and then, of course, it dies. And a church can remain uh, alive or it can remain in existence for a long time, long after it has died in the eyes uh, of the Lord. We can develop enough Christianese or enough uh, talent or have enough ability but lacking godly character uh, that you can give the appearance in this uh, culture, in Western culture, of a church being very alive and dynamic when God looks at it and says, no, it is, com- it is as disconnected from the head. It is as disconnected from uh, Jesus Christ as ever the Elks Club is uh, or the Masons who, or whoever else uh, we might uh, come to mind. Uh, Jesus spoke of the church of Sardis in the book of Revelation in this regard. They were dead. And yet they had the ability to give the appearance of life. Jesus spoke to them in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you're alive. The whole community thinks that you're a living church. You have a reputation for being a living church. But Jesus then uh, declares to them in uh, uh, four very powerful words, but you are dead, and then goes on to speak to them about what they need to do to arise out of that condition. So church leadership, and, and, and it's true of each of us as Christians, we have to take care of and nourish our own souls. We have to be spiritually healthy enough to, to then be able to be a healthy influence or to be of any help uh, in anyone else and uh, leading them and helping others in the body of Christ or those that don't know the Lord 
yet. And so leaders have to live close to God. They have to abide in Jesus, the Bible says, in the same way that the branch abides uh, in the vine. In other words, the relationship with God, it has to be strong and it has to be healthy. And the single most important thing, in my opinion, in or, that we can do in order to maintain this is to maintain what is known as a daily quiet time or a devotional life with God. And this is just simply time that is spent uh, each morning to begin the day. Cup of coffee's okay. Cup of tea, it's all lawful in there. Uh, but uh, make sure it's not so much coffee that you cease to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I'm just talking to uh, maybe a handful of you here today. But to begin the day, uh, reading God's Word, beginning it in prayer with a focus uh, supremely, not on leading the church, but in our individual hearts, a focus upon our personal relationship with the Lord and growing in that relationship. It's vital for leaders to realize that, and we lose track of it, that when God called us, uh, He called us first and foremost into a relationship with Him. He didn't call us first and foremost into ministry. Uh, that's a second thing that flows out of the first. I always cringe a little bit when maybe I'm at a pastor's conference or in a private conversation, and, and I'll hear a pastor talk about using his uh, devotional time uh, for sermon preparation. And uh, that's a violation of what Paul is talking about here. Uh, that's a, a pastor or a leader that's jumped the order, very vital order that Paul emphasizes here. Uh, take care of yourself first, the idea is, and then out of the health of your relationship with God, then you take heed of the flock. And the Apostle Paul made this point uh, elsewhere and significantly to his protege by the name of Timothy, who at the time he writes this to them, uh, him, he is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he wrote to uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So the same order, take heed to yourself first and foremost, and then out of that then uh, take heed uh, uh, to doctrine and then take heed to the flock. Because just as no church will really rise for any length of time uh, above the spirituality of its leadership, so too no leader will ever, not for any length of time, rise above their devotional life rise above our personal relationship with God uh, that is nurtured in that time that is spent with God. It's interesting to uh, realize that this is the very area. You wonder, why is he spending so much time on this this morning? No, you weren't, but I thought I'd say that. Um, but you might be wondering why spend so much on time on the one point uh, here. I do so because it's interesting to realize that it was in the, exactly this very area that the church of Ephesus ultimately stumbled. Uh, Jesus, again, in, in the book of Revelation, he writes the first of his seven letters to the church at Ephesus, and he declared to them, 
of Revelation 2, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. That's a description of Jesus. Jesus said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You're saying, where's the address of this church? I think I want to go to it. But he then goes on after affirming the good things there. He said, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Yes, you're doing all of these things, but they are no longer an expression of your relationship with me. You've dumped the relationship, and now you're doing these things, and Jesus knows no church can get those things backwards and have any hope of, of existing for any uh, length of time. And so he said, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works. Go back to where your priorities were uh, proper, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so all of this good that they were doing, but all of it at the sacrifice of their personal relationship uh, with God. And so he threatens them. He says, I will remove the fullness of my spirit upon your church, upon this church, until you figure out that uh, I have called you first and foremost uh, to a relationship and not to service, and you get this uh, priority that you've gotten backwards uh, right side up. And so leaders first must uh, take heed to themselves and their relationship with God, and then out of that health of that relationship to take heed to the flock. Uh, otherwise, we are cut off from the head. Who is the head of the church? Jesus is the head of the church. We are uh, the body. Uh, how in the world can I or any leader in a church lead a church if we've been cut off from God? if we've been cut off from uh, that relationship, communication with Jesus, then what in the world are we going to have to offer people in terms of counseling or teaching or uh, love or prayer or anything? And so uh, the pressure uh, here and, and the reason he speaks this thing to leaders, you would think, boy, leaders of anybody, I mean, they've got to be, they got all the time in the world to have quiet time in the morning and so forth. What in the world is he talking to them uh, about? Uh, uh, there is immense pressure upon pastors and other leaders within any local church uh, to uh, give you know, way to the tyranny of the urgent and sacrifice this part uh, of our lives, and it has to just ruthlessly be resisted. Uh, when I became a pastor, I thought, well, now I'll have all of the time in the world without any pressure, you know, related to this area of my life, 
and, uh, and dedicate as much time as I need to and so forth. And yet, when I became a pastor, I discovered that ministry is a workaholic's dream. Uh, the in-basket is always way fuller than the out-basket. There are so many urgent things going on. There is so much pressure at the beginning of the day. You already look at it and say, there's no way I'm going to be able to get to everything I know I need to get to uh, today. And so the temptation to wake up and get on the phone right away or get onto this thing preparing a sermon or whatever it is right away at the sacrifice of the time that is uh, spent uh, with the Lord. And so the temptation is tremendous to uh, not give the first fruits of the day uh, to the Lord and to start to head into the workload. But uh, we'll accomplish much more in a day having spent time with the Lord. And this is true of all of us. We're all leaders as Christians. We're not the head, uh, we're not the tail, we're the head, the Bible says. So whether it's in our homes or our workplace or school, our relationships or our neighborhood or whatever it might be, uh, in order to lead in this world, and we're all called to lead as Christians in this world, then uh, the importance of uh, this time and will accomplish much more after that time than we ever would have by sacrificing that uh, hour or whatever uh, it might be. Thankfully for me, I don't feel the pressure against my quiet time uh, as much as I did in the early years uh, for the simple reason that I can't function without it now. <laughs> I just can't get through a day, uh, let alone any series of days, without having spent... Uh, uh, time with him, getting uh, right with the Lord and current with the Lord on a daily basis before I ever try and uh, help any, uh, anyone else. And so Paul was right to begin exactly where, uh, where he did. Then they are to take heed to the flock of, of God. By the way, I won't spend the same amount of time on each of the points uh, to help some of you relax that are getting a little uh, hungry after Haji talking about that brisket and the barbecue and all of that. He says, second, verse 28, they're to take heed to the flock. And so a leader is to have a great love for the church that they serve and to make the people of that church obviously a very, very high uh, priority in their life in terms of focus and in terms uh, of attention. Without this, we just simply are not leaders. Um, when I look for a person uh, and, and in considering them for leadership here at Calvary Modesto, uh, one of the things I always look for is, do they like to be around sheep? Uh, do they like to be around people? I have just this very simple saying, that shepherds will always like to be around sheep. And when I see someone who wants to be a shepherd, but they don't like to be around sheep, I realize I'm probably not dealing uh, with a shepherd here. And so uh, sometimes through the years, I've seen uh, men especially very, very uh, gifted, very, very talented, very experienced, but they don't really care for people. So they attend Sunday morning services uh, inconsistently or they never attend the Sunday night uh, service. Well, that's when most of the sheep are present. 
And it's not about coming and listening to a sermon. That's not my greatest concern, though everyone needs to hear what the, the teaching of the Word of God. But I look at it and say, this person doesn't like to be around the flock. They don't have a concern uh, for the flock. And so then I question uh, their uh, calling as a leader. I think that God will put in our hearts a, a, a longing to be around people, whether one-on-one -on -one or uh, whether in a group setting uh, like, uh, like this. And very often you have uh, some, uh, I've discovered it's not predominant, but it occurs occasionally. You have someone who's a very, very talented, very gifted person who's just simply looking for a church to uh, attach themselves to as an extension for the expression of, of their gift or their thing that they want to do, but they aren't uh, shepherds. Shepherds don't shepherd on their own terms. Uh, they, their concern is for the needs of God's people and to tend the flock of God. Well, how in the world do leaders take heed to the flock of God? They do principally in two ways by feeding them, and then also by tending them. One of the greatest responsibilities that a shepherd has related to uh, sheep is to feed them. You can pull all the bugs and the burrs out of their fur all you want, or their wool, but if you don't get them to food, uh, nothing else is going to matter. So the importance of feeding, and then the importance of, uh, of uh, tending. And so how do we feed the flock of God in a church? By teaching the Word of God, whether it's from behind a pulpit or individually in a counseling session or a, a private conversation or home Bible study and so forth. How do we tend uh, the flock of God? By uh, paying close attention to the people that were around and uh, looking out for them, caring for them, protecting them, uh, praying for them, encouraging some, uh, exhorting others, being available to them. And uh, this uh, reminds us, of course, of a very famous exchange that occurred between uh, the Apostle Peter and Jesus, as Jesus is restoring him uh, back into ministry, recommissioning him in John chapter 21. And Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he, Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, as a means of expressing his love, feed my lambs. And then he said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he asked him a, a third time, how could he doubt it? And, and, uh, and he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus then said to him, feed my sheep. And that's what overseers and that's what leaders do uh, is they feed uh, the flock of uh, God and they uh, tend to them. Uh, the third uh, thing is uh, that uh, the exhortation that God, Peter give, uh, Paul gives to leaders here is the needed reminder that a leader is an overseer of God's people. But, he, but only God and only Jesus is the one who has purchased them, verse 28, with his blood. And so, yes, we oversee God's people, but they belong to God. They do not belong 
to us. And so we are, we are to point people to God. We're to help them uh, grow in their trust in the Lord, uh, but we are never, ever to put ourselves in a place where we are building a dependence of people upon ourselves rather than uh, upon God. We are not to make ourselves a mediator uh, between people and God, and, uh, but to point them uh, right to the Lord. Sometimes people ask, and, and I, you know, maybe sharing the Lord with somebody or whatever, and then they find out that I'm a pastor, and then they go, oh, great, okay, I'm dealing with a professional now. And uh, so, uh, but uh, I'll invite them to church and so forth, and they'll say, well, what's it, you know, what's it like? And I said, well, we spend time doing two things principally, worshiping the Lord in song and then in the study of the Word. We point to God, people to God and studying the word, through the Word and then through worship, and then we get out of the way. And uh, that's uh, how I view it uh, entirely. This is all about uh, uh, God. And there was, some of you remember years ago, this whole shepherding movement in this regard. And of course, they lost complete sight of this, where people couldn't buy a home or a refrigerator, or they couldn't buy a, uh, they couldn't get married, or they couldn't go off to school without checking with the leaders of the church and getting approval related uh, to these kind of uh, of things. And of course, it's ap- that's absolutely crazy for a leader to to uh, be, be given that kind of a position, but to e- something wrong with a leader that wants that kind of position. Uh, in a person's uh, life and that people would allow them to do that. But it does happen, and it happens even uh, yet today. And uh, there are people that are kind of control freaks or they have kind of this deep psychological need to be needed by other people, and then they get into a position of leadership in church, and and they're uh, creating a dependency in people's lives for them. We are never to seek a position in people's lives that belongs solely to God. And this realization that we are uh, ministering to Christians within the church, that we are ministering to people who are uh, dearly loved by God for all of their problems and all of their needs, that is a very, very healthy attitude within leadership. God loves these people for all of their spots and wrinkles. God loves me for all of my spots and my my wrinkles. Sometimes you'll hear a very well-meaning Christian say to another Christian in an attempt to get them to feel better about themselves, they'll say, well, if you really want to know what you're worth, uh, look at the cross. Jesus' death upon the cross shows you how much you're worth to God. Well, there's a problem with that saying, and the main problem with it is that it's simply wrong. Uh, God, when we look at Calvary, we're never to assume uh, that God got value for value at Calvary. The cross of Calvary is not a demonstration of our worth. It is a demonstration of God's love for us. But God, when we were still sinners, God demonstrated His own love toward us. Uh, That's when Christ died for us, as Paul wrote to the church at Rome. So there's that realization of how much God loves this individual that I am now talking to, that I am now praying for, that I am now praying with. And so when leaders minister to 
God's people, it's important that we consider kind of the immense magnitude of God's love for them. They belong to Him. They do not belong to us. And it fills us with this sense of honor that God would allow us to minister to uh, anyone and attend to them on His behalf. It also is a tremendous protection in our lives against becoming harsh in our treatment of them or becoming dictatorial uh, in uh, their life. It doesn't mean that there isn't occasionally where sometimes where we must rebuke or we must exhort uh, or say something uh, corrective as a part of our calling, but when we do it, we'll do it with the right attitude. Fourth in verse 29, Paul warned regarding savage wolves that would come into the church from the outside and uh, not sparing uh, the flock. This is speaking of false prophets and false teachers that would come into uh, the church at Ephesus. They would attempt to come into any uh, church, and then if they're allowed to come into the church and have influence, they will destroy the church. Here you've got this very healthy church going on at Ephesus, and wolves look at that, and all they see is a room full of sheep uh, that they can now destroy with their doctrine and their thing. And so any church that's healthy, any church that is in good shape is always going to catch the eye of wolves, and they will then come in and try to do their thing uh, within, that, uh, within that church. Jesus warned in this regard. He said, "'Beware of false prophets.'" who come to you in sheep's clothing. So they're tough to spot uh, initially, but outwardly they are ravenous wolves. So wolves are predatory. They're not a cocker spaniel. Uh, they have a, a, a instinctively, they eat sheep. Uh, they destroy. And so they uh, target the sheep. And so all of that, when Paul is talking about this, I mean, it's very serious business. Uh, if a wolf gets loose within a, a, an individual church, a lot of sheep have the potential of being eaten before uh, they're removed if it's not taken care of. So within leadership, it requires uh, tremendous vigilance and uh, courage and, and backbone uh, to not try and pander to everyone when someone gets uh, identified in this way. You have to be strong and you have to address it. You don't tame wolves. They don't, are untamable. You don't negotiate with wolves. You have to keep them away from the church and from the flock. And there's no negotiating a place for them within the church. Okay, we don't want to hurt your feelings. We don't want to deal with you in a strong way. Maybe we'll just give you a corner of influence within the church. You can never give any kind of a place to these uh, kind of people. Not often... But occasionally through the years, I've had to approach a person, very often it's a married couple, who have come into the church and they hold some kind of a, a different view on a, they're either bringing heresy or they're bringing a different view on a significant area of, uh, of uh, doctrine from uh, what we hold. And so they always come in by stealth and they start to meet people in the church and then they start to invite them to a little Bible study that they're holding at their house so you can get into the deep things of the Lord. Yes, Sundays and so forth there, that's fine for the milk of the Word, but we're getting into the deep things and so forth. 
And then people get invited there, and then it, sometimes it takes a while for us as pastors to get wind of it and then, uh, and then find out what they're doing and then get with them and talk about them. How are you seeing? What are you doing here? And what, how do you see this particular area? And why are you teaching what you're teaching? And this is what we're teaching. And, and, uh, and if they're not uh, teachable on the issue, then to let them know that they're not welcome to fellowship uh, here. I remember talking with a man and his wife, but I addressed the man who held a doctor that I consider to be very dangerous uh, within the body of Christ. And he started to attend the church with his wife, and he's characteristic of this kind of situation. And, uh, and they did this very kind of thing, starting this thing and pulling people away and so forth. And I chatted with him and found out, okay, this is the doctrine that he's trying to uh, put, pull people into and all. And I said, why in the world do you come here? Why do you come to this church? I mean, you know that we don't believe that and we will never believe that. So why don't you go find a church that teaches what you teach and, uh, you know, and, and believes what you believe? And he said, he said, I like this church. It's filled with life, and there's spiritual energy here and everything. I mean, the church that we left and we grew up in, it was dead. It was lifeless. This has uh, life here. And I said, yeah, but don't you realize that that church became what it became under the influence of the doctrine that you're trying to bring here, and if you're successful here, you'll destroy it as much as the other one uh, has been uh, destroyed. Today, there is so much false doctrine and so many false prophets within professing Christianity. It really, really is frightening. Now, when I talk about professing Christianity, I'm talking about everything that identifies itself as being Christian. I'm not talking about evangelical uh, churches or uh, exclusively or Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches and so forth, but what identifies itself as Christian but is not. Uh, the cults are, uh, you know, notorious for this. Mormonism would be included in this, Jehovah Witnesses, Christian science, and, and so forth. But then you have this vast number of people. I mean, it's just huge numbers of people within liberal denominations that call themselves Christians, uh, but they don't believe in Jesus' virgin birth. They don't believe in his deity. They don't believe in his resurrection or the divine inspiration of the Scriptures and the necessity of being born again. And then all of this kind of crazy stuff that goes on, the fads that go through the body of Christ so often, uh, the positive confession stuff that happens today, that if you just are have enough faith, you'll always be healed, and God will always multiply your money that you give to Him uh, tenfold. And even false teaching today that's becoming dominant today, even among leaders, uh, soft related to sexual immorality, and not just homosexuality, but heterosexuality uh, uh, that is immoral uh, as well, the redefining of marriage and so forth. There's a lot of stuff that's in play right now and, and, and is going on today, and leaders have a responsibility to keep a church doctrinally pure, to keep it well-directed in the 
spiritual environment that we find ourselves in, in in the world today. And Paul, he had been fighting all of this battle largely on his own at Ephesus. He'd been doing uh, virtually all the heavy lifting in this uh, area and uh, paying the personal price for it. Now it was going to be time for these other leaders to now step up and uh, do the same things in opposing the false teachers and the wolves. And then notice harder still, uh, Paul warned of the dangers that can arise from within a church's own leadership, Uh, leaders who begin to teach error uh, in an attempt to draw people off uh, to themselves, verse 30. And so they'll teach these uh, twisted or distorted truths that they know that people like to hear, that people will respond to. This strikes a nerve. People like this, and they'll come to me as a result of it. It's what Paul uh, wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to faith. And leaders learn very quickly what people like to hear and what they don't like to hear and how to massage the Scriptures in order to try and massage the people as a result of that. And this kind of thing can happen uh, within leadership in a church. And here we're told that they will do it out of a desire of kind of developing their own following within a church, and they do it out of a motivation of selfish ambition. So they elevate their own selfish desires above the health of the local church. Their thing becomes more important uh, than the church as a whole. And so for them, the uh, church and church leadership isn't about uh, leading the flock and feeding the flock and tending the flock and so forth. It just represents a place for them uh, to seduce people and uh, draw a following after themselves. And unfortunately, this kind of thing goes on all of the time uh, in the body of Christ, and it's a significant uh, player uh, behind uh, many, many church uh, splits. Anytime you have selfish ambition in a leader and then a lack of integrity within a leader, it's always going to lead to a lot of trouble. And so uh, God help us as leaders within this church to steer away from becoming a prey to this kind of a, of a seduction. And it's in all of us. Uh, the Holy Spirit warns, Philippians chapter 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. James talks about, uh, again, this, this uh, danger of selfish ambition uh, within leadership or within all of us as Christians as well. James 3, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Do you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts? Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. And so a leader has to resist these kinds of people, even within a church, and sometimes, uh, and that, of course, is messier than ever dealing with wolves 
of something coming from uh, the outside. Almost nothing more miserable uh, than this, and I don't think that there's anything that takes a greater toll upon a leader than having uh, to address that uh, within a church. And Paul had to deal with it over and over and over again, uh, verse 31, and uh, in later writing to Timothy. Again, as Timothy is uh, leading the church at Ephesus at the time and, uh, and uh, concerning, no doubt, some of the very, very men that are listening to Paul as he's speaking this uh, to them at, the, at Miletus, that Paul then has to address them later. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Now, the purpose of the commandment, Paul wrote, is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understand neither what they say uh, nor the things which they affirm. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This I charge... Uh, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, uh, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith in a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may not learn, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This was an issue Paul had to deal with, even in a church as healthy as Ephesus. Second Timothy chapter uh, two, verse sixteen. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are this sort who, having strayed from the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Now, the sixth among his uh, take heeds is in verses 33 through 35, a warning against covetousness uh, within the heart uh, of a leader. No one is to ever become a leader in the church out of a motivation of making money uh, out of the calling, saying, oh, that would be a nice calling. I think I can make uh, some money off of that. There's one uh, famous televangelist. He was in uh, college. He, t he speaks openly about it, uh, had no relationship with God or anything. And he looked and said, as he looked at, you know, uh, television ministry and so forth, he said, that's a way to make a lot of money. And that's exactly what he did and why he got into it. Nothing wrong with a pastor or a leader being supported financially when the church is able to do that. But no leader is ever to do, uh, lead and, and to operate within these offices out of a motivation for money. And no one is ever to use a leadership position in a church to enrich themselves. Um, one of the reasons that Paul talks about this is that when God uses a leader in a person's life uh, to help guide them through a, a rough patch in their marriage or a rough spot in their life and so forth, uh, or they become born again as a result of the preaching of the leader, uh, that uh, member of the flock is has a sense of indebtedness to that person. They'll esteem them very, very highly. And it's very easy for an unscrupulous leader to come in and to begin to now uh, use it as a manipulation and use it as a way of separating people uh, from their money. And, uh, uh, and a leader is never 
to do that. Uh, Paul quotes in verse 35 an a unrecorded beatitude of Jesus in this uh, regard, and, uh, and what he's speaking here is that when the position of leadership is done right, uh, the leader is always going to do far more giving uh, to people than they will ever receive from people. That's the whole deal. That's what it's about. Uh, that's how it's supposed to be. And, uh, but in that calling, they'll also learn that it's more blessed uh, to give than to receive, and it's true. And so the blessing and satisfaction, really, of caring for people on God's behalf. So we notice these things, and taking heed to ourselves, taking heed to the flock of God, the danger of wolves from without, the danger of uh, selfishly ambitious uh, leaders from within, the danger of covetousness. And you might imagine that as these leaders are listening to Paul uh, speak to him, <laughs> uh, to them here, they might have thought to themselves, who in the world is equal to this? Who can do these? All of you just talked us out of it. We're going to head back to Ephesus and uh, forget about being leaders. Who's going to take care of us? And a calling that has demands like that, and Paul proceeded to tell them in verse 32, and he gives them two encouragements, two great encouragements that I won't develop this morning, uh, but they're very simple and very powerful. And number one, he said in verse 32, I commend you to God. I'm leaving. I'm not going to be around anymore. But God's not going anywhere. God is going to be with you and as powerfully with you as ever he always has been. Stay close to him, and you'll find that he's greater than every need that you have. I commend you to God. And so God is greater than every need or every problem we'll ever face, whether in leadership or as a, as a, a, a Christian in any capacity. And then second, he said, I commend to you, I commend you to the word of his grace. I'm leaving, but God's staying with you, and he's bigger than everything you'll face, and then I commend you to his words. Stick with the word, depend upon God, and you'll do fine. Build your ministry on those things, and you're going to be okay. And so every leader has to face all of these challenges from without and from within in a church, but God is greater than all of those things that they and we will face. And again, he brings it back to the relationship, the importance of a relationship uh, with uh, God. It is absolutely vital in a leader to possess that. Now, I know I've got you five minutes over, but I want to close with one illustration. It is fascinating to me in this whole commending these leaders to, um, uh, to God himself and to the word of God. Uh, you, you know how a beautiful example that Paul does in that. <clears throat> One of the interesting things about Pastor Chuck Smith, who the Lord used to found Calvary Chapel movement, is that one thing that Pastor Chuck never did is he never allowed you to ever build a dependence upon him. No matter how great your need or how bad the fire was that was burning at the church or whatever it was, he always pointed you to God. He would, he, he, and, and forced you to depend upon God to get you through the situation, even though very often he would have the resources to take care of it with a phone call. But he would never do it. 
And the older I get, the more I realize the wisdom of that. Uh, he had an assistant pastor who is also home with the Lord now uh, named Pastor Romaine. And Pastor Romaine used to say, if the Lord got you up, he'll keep you up. And, uh, and one of the, I think it's one of the strengths of the Calvary Chapel movement is that there isn't this uh, denomination, there isn't this other place. All of the churches are uh, independent. It is like learn uh, how to hear God and obey God and serve God uh, on your own uh, or you're not going to make it. And, of course, as we're forced to do that, and early on in our ministries, we almost have to be forced to do that, we discover uh, the same thing about God that Pastor Chuck discovered decades earlier in his own life and knew that we would, commending uh, to the Word of God and to God Himself uh, two that will never, ever fail us. And so then you have the sad farewell that occurs here and uh, the, the affection of these leaders for Paul. They're hugging him and they're kissing him, his hands, his neck, his cheek, common in the uh, ancient world, and crying, just openly weeping that they'll never see him again. And then with that, the apostle Paul uh, was gone uh, from them. So just a glimpse this morning, but I think it's very important. It's in the Word of God, of course, but a glimpse into um, the role and the responsibility of leadership in any uh, local church. And it's valuable instruction, yes, for leaders and supremely for leaders, but these things are important uh, for everyone to understand about uh, what goes on in uh, keeping the ingredients for a healthy church and keeping it healthy and well-directed. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Thank you, Father, for this passage of Scripture and the rock-solid instruction that it provides us as leaders within uh, this little thing called Calvary Chapel of Modesto and how we appreciate it, Lord. But then how wonderful it is for all of us as Christians to know this about leadership, not only here but everywhere, and to realize that uh, a healthy church and a, a vibrant church doesn't just happen on its own, but that there are leaders that are being faithful to their calling behind all of it, and then to pray for them, Lord, and to support them in their calling. Jesus, we thank you as a congregation for being the head of this church. We thank you for the leaders that are in this church as well, and we ask that you would continue to anoint them and continue to keep them close to you, Lord, that what they do and how they serve all of us would come out of the overflow of that relationship. And then, Lord, that you would keep them strong in your presence in their life and strong, Lord, in your word. Thank you for your blessing upon this church. We thank you for the immense grace that is represented in your blessing. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.